It's a joy once again to be with you to share God's word. And uh, I'm thankful for Pastor Ted and your elders for uh, allowing this opportunity for DNI to be with you once again. We have such fond memories of our ministry and time with you and uh, just the wonderful blessing that you have been to us. And so we are thankful again to be with you today. Well, I want to talk about nearing the end, and I want to begin by sharing an incident in my own life where I neared the end of something that was rather difficult. Uh, Back in my high school days, I decided I would run track, and I chose the mile. Uh, It may have been a bad choice. (laughs) I uh, got up very early every morning, and I ran about two miles, and... uh, Then winter came, and I couldn't run too much anymore, and finally spring broke, and it was back to my training regimen of running early in the mornings. I remember one of our meets. It was uh, early in the season. It was a cold, cold afternoon after school, and uh, it was a stiff breeze that encountered us, and there was even snow falling down. And here we are running around in our little skimpy outfits, uh, trying to stay warm. Well, my event finally came, and we milers gathered on the track, and uh, the gun cracked, and off we went. And I was running in third place as the bell rang for the final lap. And I thought, I'm in pretty good shape. Maybe I have enough to overtake the, the other two ahead of me. But as I ran faster and I went further, I hit my wall. You know what that means. And my feet felt like uh, wooden stumps. My lungs were burning. And uh, I lost ground, and I was tempted to just pull into the infield and say, this may not be my gig. But I kept on going. And as I neared the end, I got a little more energy and strength back, but my body was still shouting, quit. And uh, third place was not where I wanted to end that race. I share that personal example because I want to bring to your attention a very important statement that Peter makes In 1 Peter 4, beginning at verse 7 and down through verse 11, it begins with these words, The end of all things is near. That's a rather challenging statement, isn't it? The end of all things is near? What is he talking about? Well, nearing the end is referring to three different things that are in your outline uh, uh, that's been given to you. Uh, The first is this word incentive. What incentive do we have as we near the end, speaking, of course, of the Lord's return? And Peter is writing to first century believers who are really struggling. They have been marginalized. They've been persecuted. They've been abused. They are suffering as Christians, living in a very difficult world, a hostile Roman Empire. And in each chapter, Peter has called them to focus on the truth. Focus on Jesus Christ. Focus on holy living. Be godly. Live exemplary lives, joyful lives, even though you must suffer in the process. Now for this incentive, I want to give you two thoughts. And the first is regarding this word end. Uh, end, The end here is not a stop, but a fulfillment. Nowhere in the New Testament is this word for end used Uh, in a temporary fashion for a chronological use of time as if something simply stops it always has the idea of coming to a consummation coming to a fulfillment that a purpose has run its course and it's now finally ended in a good way and it has the idea of 
ultimate destiny is not just the end of something, it is culmination. It is the conclusion, the goal, the fulfillment, the consummation. And so Peter is saying the consummation of all things is at hand. And he's reminding them that they are to live in anticipation of the final event. And that is the coming return of our Lord Jesus Christ. So as we began the service today, I was very thankful for Debbie's choice of the song about expectation. Because that's really what this is all about. We are to live with expectancy that Jesus Christ may come today. And so he says the end of all things is very near. It's imminent. It's next on God's calendar. So we are to live in expectancy that the one who is coming to judge the living and the dead is very, very near. Contemporary evangelical theologian Wayne Grudem writes it this way, The end of all things is at hand means that all the major events in God's plan of redemption have already occurred, and now all things are ready for Christ to return and rule. Rather than thinking of world history in terms of earthly kings and kingdoms, Peter thinks in terms of redemptive history. From the perspective of all the previous acts in the drama of redemption that have been completed, creation, fall, the calling of Abram, the exodus from Egypt, the kingdom of Israel, the exile in Babylon, the return to Jerusalem, the birth of Christ, his life, death, resurrection, ascension into heaven, pouring out of the Holy Spirit to establish the church, the curtain could fall at any time, ushering in the return of Christ and the end of the age. All things are ready. The end of all things, the goal to which all these events have been, elite, have been leading, is at hand, end quote. Now you may say, well, look, everybody is waiting and he doesn't come. I mean, how can we all believe he's going to be coming when he never comes in our lifetime? Well, the Lord never said when he was going to return, He's left everyone in expectancy, in anticipation that he's going to come, and he will come. And he does tell them his coming is near. So God isn't hoodwinking uh, each generation of believers. He's not deceiving us. He's merely saying, you need to live every moment in anticipation of my return. You need to hold on to this life very loosely Jesus could come at any moment. We know that statement that Peter brings in 2 Peter, that a day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. And Peter goes on in that third chapter of 2 Peter to talk about hastening the day of Christ's return, looking forward to it. And we are to do that because a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness reigns is going to appear if we're true Christians, we ought to be sick of the sin of this world. We ought to be longing for the righteous place that God is going to provide for us at the end. And so in 2 Peter 3, verse 14, he gets down to very practical things. He says, Therefore, beloved, since you look for those things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless, and blameless. When Christ returns... We want to be in peace. We want to be spotless. We want to be blameless. And in order to do that, 
he says in verse 18 of that third chapter of 2 Peter, you need to be growing in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We need to let the word that we sang about just before this message to really dwell deeply in our hearts and to bear fruit in our lives. And so listen, folks, wherever you are today in your life, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are unshakably marching toward future glory with Christ in his heaven. And there's a day when the experiences of that glory will absolutely overwhelm every dark thing that has ever faced you in life. Can you say amen to that? Amen. Praise God for that. It's not a stop. It's a fulfillment. And it's ready for us who believe. The second thing I want you to notice here is called eternity amnesia. I point that out because it's a real danger to all of us. Eternity amnesia is losing sight of God's plan for your life. It's losing sight of the hope of that glory that we've talked about, that Peter is pointing us to here. We lose sight of that fact that, there is, that this world is not a destination, but it's a preparation for the ultimate destination, which is heaven. If we find ourselves ruled and controlled by desires and pressures and experiences and relationships of this moment, we're living as if we're, we're not facing any future at all. Our heart is shaped and controlled and our behavior formed right here and now. You see, in every moment of my life, I'm going to have to respond in one of two ways by what is before me. It can be shaped by a heart-driven pursuit of earthbound treasure, or it can be shaped by a heart-driven pursuit of the treasure of heaven. And that's what Peter's talking about here. Don't lose sight of that. Don't get eternity amnesia. This moment that you're living in, you are connected to the historical plan of God from the beginning of, of even before the beginning of time. It connects you to the future plan of God. And you must not ever try and detach from it by living simply for this world. We need theological connectivity vitally in our lives. And that's what Peter's talking about here. So this is not a stop. This is a fulfillment, a culmination, and we must never acquire eternity amnesia. Now, Peter goes on from here, and he gives us bold instructions. I want you to look at them today. And uh, as you near the end, he's saying, how, how are you going to live out your life? How are you going to conduct yourself? How are you going to live on a basis that develops habits that will enable you to stand strong in any crisis until Christ comes or until you are departed from this life and will meet him in glory. Those patterns need to be established in your life. And he gives us three of them here. Number one, in the last part of verse 7, he says, Be holy. Therefore, he says, because the end of all things is near, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. That pretty well sums up what holiness is, doesn't it? Sound judgment, sober spirit, for the purpose of communicating with God. What a wonderful treasure we have. And uh, that prayer life with, with God, a living holy God, needs to be unhindered. Now this statement, be of sound judgment, brings two Greek words together. One means save, the other means mind. So it means protect your mind, guard your mind. Don't allow it to go astray. 
Rather, as you're waiting for Christ's return, be of sound judgment, fix on spiritual priorities. It's exactly what Paul says in Colossians 3.1. Set your affections on things above and not on things on the earth. It, it, could, it could imply here, don't be swept away by emotions. Don't be swept away by crises or passions. The same word is used in Mark 5 verse 15 where uh, Jesus encounters a man and delivers him from a legion of demons and he's clothed and in his right mind. Same word. And in Romans 12, 3, he says, we're not to think more highly than we ought to think, but to think sanely, to think soundly, there it is, to bring our mind, as it were, captive to divine truth. And I think that's what Peter's getting at here. Our minds need to be captive to the word of God and to, the, uh, to Christ himself. And the great characteristic of sound judgment is that it sees things in their proper proportion, their proper perspective. And they see what is important. They also see what's not important. It isn't being swept away by emotion or changing fancies or fads. It's not unbalanced fanaticism. It's not foolish indifference. And the only people who have that kind of sound judgment are those whose mind, as the songwriter says, is stayed on thee. That is a poised life. That is a balanced Christian mind. Now, don't miss the climax of Peter's thought here. Why is he stressing sound judgment and a sound mind? Well, it's for a purpose, and that purpose is prayer, your communion with God. Oh, I hope and pray that all of us as believers are daily encountering God in prayer, coming to the throne of grace. What a privilege. What an opportunity for all of us. But when that communion is hindered by a cluttered mind, uh, a too busy schedule, the most significant experience in our Christian life is lost, our communion with God in prayer. A confused mind, a self-centered mind, a mind knocked out of balance by worldly pursuits, is a mind that cannot know the full holy communion in prayer with God. And so this is to be basic for us Christians. Today we can be dazzled by the world's fantasies. We can swept, be swept away and befuddled by its ideas. They're victimized by Satan's endless smoke screens. And as a result, their communion with God is just hindered or lost, and with it the power of prayer and the power of a powerful life. Now, in practical terms, what does this mean? Well, it means that every day I'm going to be in the Word of God. I'm going to meditate on what, what I've read throughout the day. I'm going to absorb it. I'm going to draw out the Word of God and apply it to my life, learning how to think God's thoughts after Him. And if we do that, it will come to pass that our involuntary responses will be godly responses because you are conforming your life, your mind, your heart, your will to the will of God. And then comes the sweetness of communion with God. Then comes the effective prayer. Then comes power. There, then comes that vertical link with God that is so real and so powerful and so meaningful in our lives. So he says, be holy Establish that habit, establish that in your life. And then secondly, establish this, be loving in verse 8. He moves 
from the vertical response of prayer and communion with God to a horizontal where we're dealing with others who are also awaiting the coming of Christ. This is body life in the church of Christ. And notice he begins verse 8 with a phrase, above all. In other words, of highest significance. This is the most important thing that he, he's saying in this verse. Everything you do, everything you think, everything you, you do in action, every service that you render, first and foremost in this practice is that you love one another fervently. Now, number one priority in the body then, isn't doctrine important? Yes. Isn't worship important? Yes, very important. Isn't evangelism important? Of course. Isn't prayer important, which we just talked about? Yes. Isn't preaching important? Yes. <laughs> I have to say that. <laughs> yes. Isn't helping others important? Of course. But genuine love encompasses these things. In fact, none of these things are of much significance and value unless they are fueled by love. That's the point Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Now Peter adds a very significant word here, is that word fervently or deeply. And the picture that the Greek word that's used here uh, gives to us is of a horse at full gallop. Muscles taut, sustained effort as he races along the track. In other words, put everything into your effort of showing love toward the body of Christ. William Barclay, I don't agree with everything he writes, but I think he's hit the point in this next statement. He wrote, Christian love is not an easy sentimental reaction. It demands everything a man has got of mental and spiritual nerve and muscle and sinew. It means loving the unlovely and the unlovable. It means in spite of insult and injury. It means loving when love is not returned but is spurned. Christian love is a love which never fails and the love in which every atom of man's strength is directed. Now there's a reason that Paul or Peter is stressing this. You see it in the text here. Why? Because that kind of stretched out love covers a multitude of sins. Aren't you thankful for that? Aren't you thankful that other people have love, divine love given by God's Spirit into their hearts? Every time someone wrongs me, I have a choice. Every time someone wrongs you, you have a choice too. I can deal with it, I can forgive it, I can cover it, I can move on, or I can drag that person through the mud and in hatred stir up all kinds of dissension in the body of Christ. And so the meaning here is this, love refuses to wash its dirty linen in public. It handles it privately. It goes out of its way to veil sin, to treat it discreetly. It's exactly the opposite of hatred, which humiliates people and, and, and deals with them publicly out of spite. 
And so he's saying love does not allow the shortcomings and failures of others to keep us from loving them. And listen, folks, if a church is ever at a place where you're running around poking at each other because of their sins and shortcomings, it will shatter the union and unity and peace of a church. Where none of us are perfect. We all sin in some way. We all have fallen flesh. And the only thing that's going to ride over the top of that and keep things together is love. Love is always hiding. That's the character of love. It, to put it simply, love forgives and forgives and forgives and forgives and forgives. And if that is not in a church, it's in real trouble. So what Peter is wanting us to demonstrate as we wait for the coming of Christ is a gracious spirit that avoids pettiness and pickiness, avoids that activity of gossip that loves to broadcast the sins and shortcomings of others in the body of Christ. Peter wants us to avoid a hateful spirit that loves to point out the faults of others in order to stir up trouble. To put it in our vernacular, the world out there is a dog-eat-dog world. Don't bring it in here. So Peter commands us to love fervently. In other words, keep your love at full strength. I like how one author put it. He said, the faucet of love should never be turned off. Let it flow deeply and fervently toward one another. Is your love faucet turned off today? Is there somebody in this body of Christ here at Sion Community Church that you avoid? You need to take the step that Peter's talking about here. You need to show love that only comes from God. Well, in verse 9, he expands this even further. He says, be hospitable to one another without complaint. And the word here means to love strangers. You know, it's easy to take in your friends and forgive them their faults. What Peter's saying here is extend that even to strangers. Peter has in mind here the opening of the heart in our homes for those in need. Obviously, in the early church, you couldn't stay in an inn because it was nothing less than a house of ill repute. And the early Christians probably could not have continued existing if it were not for hospitality that was offered by Christians to one another. Traveling evangelists and pastors and ministers and apostles and leaders in the church had to stay in homes. They had to be uh, given room and board. And so, as the writer of Hebrews so aptly put it, be careful how you treat a stranger you may be dealing with an angel. Reminiscent of the way back in Genesis when God and a couple of angels visited Abram and Sarah. In Exodus 22, 21, Deuteronomy 14, 28, and 29, hospitality was commanded. And Christ emphasized giving a cup of cold water in his name. And certainly God honors those who sacrificially do this. And so the whole spirit of this is bigger than just providing a meal or opening your door. It's embracing the fact that we love people outside our normal circle. And to do it without grumbling, without murmuring, without grudgingly feeling it's your compulsion that you must do it. Some have called this the poor Richard's almanac mentality. Poor Richard's Almanac says, fish and visitors stink in three days. <laughs> there, there's to be a gracious hospitality toward those we do not know yet. 
as close friends, an opening of our heart to them. So Peter says, now as you near the culmination of all things, first take care of the vertical relationship, be holy, and then emphasize this horizontal relationship, be loving, even to strangers. And now thirdly, he says, serve, serve, serve. Don't be caught sleeping when Christ is coming and and you're not doing anything in the body of Christ. And so in verses uh, 10 through 11a, as we look at those, notice, first of all, he says, while we're waiting for Christ's return, every one of us is to be serving others in the body of Christ. That's the plain and simple reading of this text. And how do we serve? He says, with our spiritual gifts. So that uh, raises the question, what is a spiritual gift? Well, I'm going to give you two different ways of seeing them. First of all, it is a graciously, freely given mode of ministry energized by the Holy Spirit. Let me repeat it. It's a graciously given free and supernatural spiritual capacity for ministry to the body of Christ. It's a God-given gift through which the Holy Spirit supernaturally uses you to minister to others in the body of Christ. Here's another way of thinking of it. It is a heightened capacity endowed by God's Spirit for something other believers can do to a lesser degree. So in some ways, every one of us is a teacher, whether we stand up in front of people and teach the Bible in your home as a mother or as a father, you are a teacher. But there are some people that God has gifted with special abilities to a greater degree than to the lesser degree that others have. And that means there's no such thing in the body of Christ as a useless Christian. I have a spiritual gift. You have a spiritual gift. We use it to minister to one another, to encourage one another, to build up the body of Christ. And so you you, it's been graciously, freely given by God. It's empowered, it's energized by the Holy Spirit. And through it, you minister to the body of Christ. Now, we're not talking about human talent here. We're talking about divine enablement. Your spiritual gift is a unique capacity, God-given, to minister to the body of, of Christ as the Spirit of God flows through you. Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches, and that that life of Christ flows through the vine to the, to the branches and we serve one another. And notice here he says, we don't own these spiritual gifts. We're merely stewards. A steward manages stuff that doesn't belong to him, that he doesn't own. And you and I don't own our gifts to speak or sing or teach or serve. Uh, God owns all of it and he designed you and he designed me and empowered us to put it into practice. Now, Peter gives us here two broad categories of spiritual gifts. Number one, serving. It isn't in your bulletin outline, but notice this. Serving portrays Christ. Serving portrays Christ. And the word that he uses here is for a common household servant that administers uh, a common household as a slave, as a servant, back in the old uh, Greco-Roman Empire. But in the body of Christ, you don't have to be seen in order to be significant. You don't have to be visible to be vital in the body of Christ. To be significant and vital, however, you must be serving by the strength which God supplies. Did you get that in the text? Now, what kind of strength is Peter talking about here? Well, it's not a strength of a a strong personality. 
If the power we need to use our spiritual gift is the power of an outgoing, powerful personality, a natural leader type, type A person, then clearly there are many in the body of Christ who, who can't serve with their gifts. Clearly the power to exercise our spiritual gift must be a power that is superior to all circumstances, a power that's not dependent upon personality. It's not dependent on moods or intelligence or education. We need a kind of power that's available to all Christians at all times in all circumstances. And that's exactly what we have. You know, like you, I have many appliances in my home. Uh, an electric toaster, I have an electric toothbrush, a microwave, stereo, television, computer, on and on we could go. And there are many appliances that are, uh, have that characteristic of being powered by electricity. In fact, uh, there was once an advertisement for an electric shoestring tying machine. <laughs> that would come in handy for those of us who have difficulty reaching down. Uh, and yet they all have one thing in common. All these appliances, a cord with a plug at the end. And they're all designed to utilize the same power. And whatever gift you have, it is the same power that energizes all of our spiritual gifts. They all operate through the flow of the Spirit of God. And listen, the early Christians like Peter and Paul and John and others knew the secret of living by resurrection power. Nothing else will account for the amazing effect they had on the world of their day. They didn't try to borrow power from the world, for they found they had all they could possibly need available and more from a risen, triumphant Christ. That is why Paul wrote in Ephesians 3, Now to him who, by the power at work within us, is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, be glory in the church. So we have serving gifts that portray Christ. Now notice secondly, at the beginning of verse 11, speaking gifts which proclaim Christ. Serving gifts portray, speaking gifts proclaim. And what Peter stresses here is this, very important. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking actual words of God. In other words, the message you're delivering isn't original with you. You're delivering his message, not yours. You're not making it up as you go. You're not spouting your opinions. You are delivering the truth of God's word. You're not an imposter. You're a messenger. You're sent with a message that it comes from heaven. So there we have, secondly, this, these instructions. The established pattern of your life. Be holy. Be loving. Be serving. Then notice... Lastly, very briefly, the intention in verse 11b. So that, there's the uh, significant clause, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We sang about that this morning, didn't we? That all we do glorifies God. That's the intention for all that we do. That's the intention of our holy living. That's the intention of our loving. That's the intention of our serving, whether it's serving gifts or speaking gifts. In all things, in all manner of Christian duty, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Now this is what we call a doxology. Doxology is simply a word that means a word of praise, a word about glory. 
So we are to glorify God. And we can only do that through Jesus Christ. We can only do that by following him. We can only do that through the one to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. And so I want to glorify God, whatever I do. I trust that's your goal as well. Whether I, I eat or drink, according to 1 Corinthians 10, 31, I want to do it all to the glory of God. And the way to do that is to live in the light of the second coming of Christ. To fulfill the obligation to live a holy life, to be loving and to be serving in the power of the Spirit, and to be speaking the word of God. And Peter can't resist throwing in an amen here on the end of this. It's saying, let it be. That's what it means. Let my life be to the glory of God. So we are to live in the disciplines of, of God's life. We're to, we're to live in a way because God expects the best of us and the goal to give him all the glory. So in the end, we are to love. We're to serve we are to be holy and we're not to take any credit for it because it must all come through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Will you stand with me as we close in prayer? Thank you, Father, for these great truths which the Spirit of God has vouched safe to our hearts in the Word of God. May we be obedient to be the people you want us to be, not just forgiven people, but transformed by the power of your Holy Spirit. And may that impulse that longs to obey attach itself in such a way that we may continually yield to those things that you've called us to do, to be holy, to be loving, and to be serving. Establish these in our heart, we pray. And we ask all this in the name of our dear Savior, our Lord and King, in whose name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Go in his grace.